listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to episode 244 of Belaboured. In this special two-part episode, we'll first speak with Michelle Valentine, a worker organizer with the newly minted Amazon Labor Union on Staten Island. And then, moving up the supply chain, we will continue our discussion on logistics labor with Lale Khalili of Queen Mary University, London. But first, a word from my co-host, Sarah. This week is our nine-year anniversary here at Belabored. Back in the spring of 2013, I had the offhand idea of doing a labor podcast. I mentioned it to Sarah Leonard, then editor at Descent, and to Josh Idelson, my first co-host, and they thought my wild suggestion was a good idea, and we all made it happen. We launched Belabored on April 12th, 2013, with an interview with Karen Lewis of the Chicago Teachers Union, who we all miss very much. And our show was born. Michelle first joined us as a guest host that October when Josh left us and became my permanent partner in crime shortly thereafter. And since then, we have brought you nearly 250 episodes of interviews with workers, organizers, historians, and authors on work and the labor movement. We've interviewed people from around the world, from Staten Island to Palestine. And in that time, we've watched a new generation of young people take up the cause of labor and win some groundbreaking victories like the one at Amazon you're about to hear about. Bringing you this level of journalism for nine years has been rewarding, but it isn't cheap and it isn't easy. It was made possible in the first place because Descent decided to invest in us, and it has continued to be possible because of your support, donations, and sharing the podcast. So we are asking for our ninth anniversary. If you have been considering becoming a subscriber on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash belabored, it would be a great time to do so. Good labor journalism is only possible if we have the same kind of working standards that we demand for other workers, living wages. We don't paywall any part of the podcast because we want it to be available to everyone regardless of their ability to pay. But if you can afford to support us, it makes a big difference to our ability to prioritize working on this podcast. And of course, we do have gifts for you if you become a supporter. Digital subscriptions to the magazine, which features my and Michelle's work regularly, as well as some of our brilliant guests and friends of the show, tote bags, and worker portraits from Molly Crabapple. Thank you for all you've done for us over the past nine years, for supporting us, sharing us with your friends, and of course, telling us your stories. Well, by now you've heard the news. Amazon workers have formed the first union at that company in the United States. The Amazon Labor Union took shape at the JFK 8 facility on Staten Island through months of grassroots organizing, a carefully calibrated public campaign, extensive online networking, and most importantly, countless hours of conversations between organizers and their co-workers inside and outside the warehouse, encouraging workers to channel their frustration and despair at their job into the creation of a democratic organization that could challenge the world's e-tail behemoth. They faced down a barrage of anti-union propaganda from Amazon, various shady legal shenanigans aimed at disenfranchising workers, a complex National Labor Relations Board bureaucracy, and the challenges of being a completely independent organization not tied to any large mainstream union. The ALU was launched by Chris Smalls, a former manager who was fired at the start of the pandemic after he protested Amazon's lacking safety practices, and Derek Palmer, a hacker at JFK 8. In addition to the resistance they faced from the management, they also had to overcome skepticism from co-workers and to persuade them that empowering themselves with a union was worth the risk. I spoke with Michelle Valentine, a member of the Workers' Committee of the ALU, about her journey as an organizer and the next steps for their union. 
how do you feel about what happened? I mean, uh, this was uh, something that I think uh, surprised a lot of people, maybe even surprised some of the organizers. But how do you feel after this victory? Honestly, I surprised at uh, the actual numbers because I, I like I knew deep down that we were going to win because the conditions in the facility are just horrendous at this point. So I knew that we were going to win, but I thought that we were going to win by like maybe like a few votes. You know, I thought maybe it was it was going to be like we were going to win by like 20 or 30 votes. I didn't think it was going to be like almost 700 votes. That's what really shocked me was the um, number of people that voted, um, you know, in our favor. What department do you work in? Yeah, I so I work in outbound. Um, so I run the conveyors. So the conveyors is pretty much the last step of the packing process. It's pretty much um, like when you get the package in the mail, I don't know if you have Amazon or anything, yeah. but when you get the package <laughs> in the mail, everybody. like, yeah, every, everybody pretty much has Amazon or they have Prime. So you, that shipping label, pretty much it gets put on a conveyor. So the packer packs it, they put everything in there. And then all of these thousands and thousands of packages get put onto the conveyor. And then there's these giant printers that put the shipping labels onto the boxes. And so I'm the person that has to run that line and run those printers that's putting the actual shipping labels on the boxes. And then I get the stuff that's like, uh, you know, like mistakes, if it's the wrong item, if it's an incorrect label, um, damaged stuff. Sometimes we get like liquids and things of that nature that just don't make it. They get thrown onto the conveyor and it just cracks and it starts leaking or it's supposed to be like one item and then it's something else supposed to be like a deodorant and instead, you know, a a can of hairspray or something gets put in. So that sounds pretty, pretty stressful. Um, How did you... It's very stressful. Yeah. At what point did you start talking to your coworkers? Were you talking after your shift, like between tasks or how did you figure that out? So how that happened was I pretty much have transferred um, several times because like, I've been there three years and I sometimes I get along with the managers. Sometimes I don't. And I was getting into a uh, heated argument with one of the managers and Derek Palmer, which is like the vice president of ALU, saw me like from a distance and he approached me later on. And um, he he says, hey, you know, I saw you arguing with one of the managers. You know, can I just ask you, you know, what was that about? And, um, you know, I told him, you know, what it was about. I told him how long I've been there. And he's like, well, you know, I'm part of the ALU. He's like, and and we're trying to get people um, to sign these uh, little cards so that we can start up a union. So that was the first time that I actually heard of it. And that was that was like maybe eight months ago seven or eight months ago. And this is when he was like secretly giving out, um, you know, info to like coworkers and things like that. Because at, at that point they were still trying to keep it like undercover and they didn't want, you know, managers or corporate to know what was going on. Um, but that was like the first time that I heard of it. And then from there, did you start talking to your coworkers and how did you manage that? Yeah. So from, from there I started talking to my coworkers and then I started um, tabling 
which is pretty much sitting at a table with a whole bunch of literature and speaking to people about the union, about what we were trying to do. Um, I started passing out literature outside. I started talking to people outside, mainly at the bus stop is where we could have conversations with people since it wasn't inside of the building. Um, because inside of the building, you have to be very careful because we didn't want any of the managers to see us because it's so easy to get fired inside of the building. It, it all has to remain like in this, in this secrecy type of a thing. So pretty much it was like limited to like the break rooms, the restrooms or the bus stop. When you started talking to folks, did you get a positive response? Were people wary? Did you have to convince a lot of people? Yeah, like I got a positive response from from a lot of people that I personally worked with because since I had already been there for three years, I know a lot of pe- a lot of the people that work there and they know me because it's such a high turnover rate that the, it's like the culture just isn't there because everyone that you get hired with is either fired or they quit like within six months time. I and mean, if they make it a year inside of the building, it's like a miracle happens. Because the turnover is just so high, especially in that building, it's just so high. So if they see someone like me that has been there a few years and they're like, oh, well, she's still here. I remember her from when I first started. So when they know that you've been there for a long time, they feel really comfortable talking to you. Even, you know, with the managers, a lot of the managers, there's a high turnover rate with them also. Some managers are there for like six months and then they're gone. So, you know, they they would bad, you know, I feel like they were more comfortable speaking to someone like me than let's say a manager or someone from human resources that, you know, they they've never worked with them, they don't know them, so there's always that that little bit of a barrier there. Yeah. And when you were um reaching out to people, did uh what were some of the things that you heard in terms of you know, when people express skepticism or uh, weren't sure, um, what were some of the yeah. sticking points that you had to, you know, talk them through? Yeah, so there there was definitely um, a lot of skepticism and people just, it depends. Like there's, there's such a diverse group of people inside of Amazon. So you have like really, really young people there there's people there that are like 19 20 years old and then it goes all the way up to people that are like in their 60s or in their late 50s and some were like well you know the older um associates are like well we're gonna be screwed because bezos doesn't want to unionize the amazons and it's he doesn't want it to be unionized. He's going to shut down the whole facility and you're going to get us all fired and you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, so it's fear basically. Yeah, exactly. Like the older, there's a lot of older ones that were very just like, I had a union in my job for 15 years where they took my money and, you know, they, they just took, it's like they took their own personal um, situations that happened with their union or negative, let's say if there's something negative that happened with their union that they had at a previous job, and then they applied it to what was happening at our job. And it's it's two completely different jobs. It's two completely different, you know, situations, two completely different environments. So you can't apply. I mean, to me personally, you can't apply something that happened to you at a previous job, you know, 10 years ago to something that's happening at this job, which is what I was, that's where I was trying to come from. 
you know, and again, this isn't an outside union. It's not like an outside union like the Teamsters or, you know, 1199 or any other outside union. This union is actually internal and it's going to be run by people like me that work here. And I've been here for a few years and I just, I'm just trying to make positive change. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to steal your money. I'm not trying to get you fired. You know, I'm not trying to start problems between, you know, you guys and management. And I don't want, you know, the management to retaliate against us. There's nothing, you know, sinister here. It's, it's like we were looked at as, as if we were like sinister people. We were troublemakers. And then with the younger, um, a lot of the younger um, associates just didn't want to pay the union dues. Everything was about union dues for us. Nah, man, I'm I'm not paying $5 for this and I'm not paying $5 for that. You know, I'm already holding down my own job and, and I don't see how someone else is going to help me hold down my job. And I'm not paying for that. I'm barely making enough money as it is. So with the younger, it was more to do with the union dues. Which with that, I would say, well, we're not going to implement union dues until we all get raises. We're not going to implement re- union dues until we all get raises. I know that all of us are making less than 36000 a year. There's no way in hell that we can afford union dues at less than 36000 a year in New York City. Like, it's just impossible. So you think that um, the independence of the ALU uh, was helpful in uh, winning people over because you are not tied to a bigger organization because other people might see that as a challenge. Yes, that I think that was that was key. I think that was key, even though a lot of people um, felt like, well, they have no experience. They really don't know what they're doing. Um, but then when they saw that there was, a diverse group of us um, because I'm in my 40s. So with a lot of people, well, she's not, you know, she's not super, super young. So she can't be like completely stupid. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> not that not that young people are stupid, but a lot of people are like, they'd rather take the word of someone who's 45 than, than someone who's 21. Like that's just a fact. Yeah, they know you're not just messing around, right? Exactly. They're like, yeah, she's just, you know, she's she's a little bit older than the rest of them. And it's not just me. It's a few of, a few of us that are like 40 and up. Um, so they, they kind of looked at us like, okay, well, these guys, I don't think they're playing any games because everyone else is just a little bit younger. So with that, it's like, they're like, eh, I don't know what's going on here. Is this like a joke? Is this a prank? Is this something that they're doing, you know, for, for, a school thing? Is this like a school project that they're doing in college or something? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> they think it's some like weird experiment that you're trying out on them or something. Yeah. Like a weird, like social experiment. <laughs> um, so um, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious as to um, like, did you know a lot about unions before or had you had any experiences positive or negative with them or like what, what kind of turned you on to the idea of unionization um, and, you know, uh, and made you kind of like a, you know, a, a, a campaigner? <laughs> yeah. So with me personally, I've never actually had a union at my job, but I do have friends that have jobs where they have unions. Um, I have a lot of friends that, well, actually one of my really, really close friends works for the MTA. And she's been working for the MTA, I'd say, almost 10 years now. And she tells me about 
her union, um, you know, the benefits that she gets from her union, um, you know, how much she gets paid, if there's an issue, you know, what she has to go through, you know, with her union and then with the MTA itself to try to resolve the issue. And I've always thought that that was just like an amazing thing to have. Um, I also have another friend that has a union at her job. She works in, uh, she works like at a construction company that pretty much sends workers out to different sites, but she has a union for her job. And then my brother also, he works for transportation alternatives in the Bronx and he, his job is also unionized and he's heavily involved in his union. So I haven't personally had a union with, any of my jobs, but I have other uh, people or really close friends or family that are involved or have union jobs. So that's how I've gotten to, you know, see how it, what a big difference it is between having a job that has a union and having a job that doesn't have a union or a workplace. Yeah. And so you were, were you on the um, workers committee? Yeah. Yeah. I was on, on the workers committee. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that was set up and um, what were the meetings? Yeah, it was it was a lot like um, it was like almost like a secret society type of a thing because everything that we had to do was it was like hush hush. We had to like really do it in secret, and we would usually meet up at Connor's house. Um, and he's the other vice president, so there's two vice presidents: there's Derek and then there's Connor. And in Connor's house, it would be like uh, we would have it there in person. But then for those who like are working or just couldn't make it in person or just didn't feel comfortable around being so many people and, you know, in a small little apartment because of COVID and stuff like that, we would also have it on Zoom. Um, So Zoom was like really, really important because we were able to have everyone just on the call and listening to everything that was being said. Um, So Zoom you know, pretty much saved our lives. Uh, it was it was a really important tool that we used. And we would just have meetings about, um, you know, what we could kept pass out in the break room, what Amazon was doing as far as the union busting tactics. So they would have people like me. And when I was sent to the union busting meeting classes, because we were sent about once or twice a day, um, I would record every single class just to get the verbiage of what they were using. So let's say they were using like certain words or certain phrases or certain, you know, say certain things to just scare the employees to hopefully get them to vote no. And sometimes they would just adamantly just say vote no. They say, we're asking you to vote no. Also, that's how we figured out that they were also targeting a lot of Latinos inside of the facility because a lot of the uh, verbiage that they were using, and then they started putting everything in Spanish also. So the general manager, his name is Felipe Santos, he's fluent in Spanish. So when he was saying his um, video for the Vote No campaign that Amazon was on for their union busing uh, video, he would say something in Spanish, and then he would say it in English. And that's when they had people like me and people like Justine and people like uh, Cassio because we speak fluent Spanish also. So that's when we were like, okay, so you want to, you know, 
use your uh, bilingual skills to get people to vote no. Okay, so we're going to use our bilingual skills. <laughs> like, you can yes, play this because, game. <laughs> exactly. Like, we also speak fluent Spanish, Felipe. You're not the only one that can speak Spanish. So it, it was just like, it was like a game of ping pong almost. Um, because at, at, since they were mandatory classes, all of the AOU were being sent to the classes. It was almost like they were like shooting themselves in the foot, I, would, I have to say. By that point, you, uh, you were public, right? Did you ever just think that they were going to fire the organizers? <laughs> like, did they try to? I don't know. I guess I'm just thinking like, once you go public and you know that, you know, they're so hell-bent on stopping the union, couldn't they yeah. have just tried to dismiss everyone? Yeah. Yeah. So I, we were pretty, we were very scared that uh, we were going to get terminated for every little thing. So that's why we were very, very cautious. So we didn't, we didn't get terminated, but three of the AOU uh, members did get arrested in front of the facility. And I don't, I don't know if you heard about that, but they were actually arrested. Um, Chris was one of them. So technically he's not an employee, but the other two employees, Brett and Jason were arrested on their lunch break. Um, And we were getting food delivered inside of the break room. Um, because another thing that we did was is we served food while we were tabling, we would serve food. Like, let's say we would get like baked ziti or pizza or, you know, rice with chicken. Um, and we would give out food. And then while we were giving out food, we would give out literature. So we were getting some food delivered and, um, Felipe Santos and the assistant, uh, manager, Zachary, they called the NYPD and said that they were trespassing inside of the building and the NYPD pretty much arrested um, all three of them and kept them in a holding cell for like seven hours. There were workers, but they were trespassing in their own workplace. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Brett and Jason were, were trespassing, but they were both on their lunch breaks. Like they were scheduled to work that day. They were on their lunch break. And that's what we did on our lunch break. Instead of taking lunch, we would table and we would give out literature and give out free food. We were doing like bake-a-thons where we would, everyone was just like baking cakes and cupcakes and cookies and things like that. So they were like, okay, well, we're now just going to. So they, I guess they thought that maybe getting those three people arrested, especially Chris, because he's the leader of the AOU. They figured if they get him arrested, that's going to scare everyone else. And hopefully they'll just, you know, let this whole thing go. They were wrong. <laughs> yeah. Because then that when that happened, that's when we got like really pissed off. You know, it's like it, it's like everything that they tried to do. It did the exact opposite. Like they had intentions to do certain things and it just backfired on them like all the way around. Now that you're sort of moving into like the next phase of the organization, how will things change? Um, will there be uh, leadership elections or how is it going to work with meetings and, and, uh, and that sort of thing? Yeah. yeah. So right now we're having, um, what we're doing is we're sending out like a massive email to all of the associates because we're going to have like um, elections for certain positions. Um, like let's say who's going to be a shop steward, who's going to be um you know, in charge of fundraising, um, who's, you know, going to have those type of positions. So pretty much it's going to be 
the vote is going to, like, the people that are selected is going to be by the warehouse um, associates. That's what's happening right now. And then once the people that get elected are elected, we're going to do basically like a survey with all of the warehouse associates to figure out what's the priorities of what really needs to be changed so that we can sit down um, for the negotiations. Like, we already have some dates set up with the negotiations with Amazon. Um, I believe it's supposed to be like May 3rd, May 4th or May 5th, but Amazon has already said that they're refusing to sit down with us to um, even have any type of a meeting, that they're contesting, you know, they're contesting the vote. They're saying the NLRB are involved. Um, they don't believe that the, the vote is, um, you know, that the, that the vote is a real vote, that they feel like it was just um, contaminated or tampered with, and they're just contesting the whole vote at this point. Right. So that could take months, right? I mean, they're, they yeah. can keep, okay. Yeah, it, it could take months. It could take months. Like, I'm already prepared for that, um, you know, because I already knew that, I, I mean, I knew we were going to win the vote, but I also knew that the vote was pretty much, that was going to be like the easy part. After the vote, after, you know, we've seen as a valid um, organization or a valid union that I knew that Amazon was just going to pretty much, you know, say no to everything that we're going to say. So that's why we also have another vote coming up for the building next door to us. I don't know if you know about that. So also on Staten Island. Yeah. So it, no, it's literally right across the street from us. So where the bus stop is like there's, there's JFK eight is right there. Right. And then you go across the street to the bus stop and then LDJ five is literally right across the street. Wow. Yeah. So that's going to happen at the end of this month. Um, They're going to vote at the end of this month. So what we're hoping is that, if we're unionized in JFK 8 and then LDJ 5 unionizes in LDJ 5, then Amazon will have absolutely no choice but to negotiate with us because it's not only just one building, it's two buildings that are unionized. Yeah. So, so that's why they did it in a way that JFK 8 was going to have their vote, we got the vote, and then less than a month later... LDJ5 is going to have their vote. Are you anticipating a lot of other Amazon warehouses uh, also having their own yeah. votes across the country? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what we're, that's our intention. Like after this, it's going to go to New Jersey because Chris and Derek, they're originally from the Jersey um, warehouses. So they um, started off in um, New Jersey. So those are actually their original uh, warehouses. So they, really want to get those two warehouses in New Jersey unionized because they were there, you know, for years. That's where they started. Um, and, and, it's, and it's personal for them. Um, they had transferred over to JFK 8 thinking that there was going to be opportunity in JFK 8 because they weren't able to move up in management in the New Jersey facilities. So they thought that it was a facility issue. They, along with, you know, many of us, many of people that work for, for Amazon think that it's just one facility. You know, we were like, oh, it's just this facility. Maybe if I transfer to another facility, I'll have more opportunities. You know, maybe it just won't be so extreme in another building. And then when you transfer to another building, you're shocked because sometimes 
it's even worse. And that's what happened to Chris and Derek. They transferred to JFK 8, and JFK 8 actually turned out to be 20 times worse than the New Jersey facility. It's interesting that now, like, you're kind of turning it back in them, right? Because if you've worked in all these facilities, then you know people at all these facilities, and you can hopefully exactly. help organize them. Yeah, exactly. That's that. So that's what, you know, that's what we're going to do, like, as far as trying to get Amazon to negotiate, because if it's just one building, one, one building isn't enough. Like, we know that. We know that this, this like, you know, one little building to Amazon is, is, is like, it's like 50 cents in their pocket, pretty much, because Amazon is, is just such a, it's, it's an octopus. It has affiliates everywhere. You know, it just, it just bought MGM Studios for like $8.6 billion. So, you know, they have affiliates, they're getting into the healthcare industry. I mean, there's, you know, they have um, Prime TV. There is, you know, Prime Music. They have a whole um, section that they just sell, like books and um, student uh, equipment and things of that nature. And, you know, a lot of affiliates, a lot of friends. They make a lot of donations to a lot of organizations. You know, the warehouse is just like a teeny tiny little piece of the pie. A lot of their money comes from um, the services they provide as a server for a lot of things. So they're they're providing the technological infrastructure. So exactly, they're they're like a tech giant. Besides, so they're it's like they're like it's a very strange combination of labor and tech combined. I know you can't you know go over all the things that. Um, piss you off about working at Amazon because you'd be here forever. But um, maybe like one key thing, like a, a one major point that you want to see addressed in uh, contract negotiations, uh, which will happen eventually, hopefully. Yeah. So, I mean, the main thing right now that I think um, is for me and, and everyone else right now are the wages. Um, and the wages is so important because of inflation and especially living in New York City, the prices of everything has just like tripled um, as far as gas, groceries, um, even basic utilities like Con Edison, National Grid. And, you know, the wages is a major, major problem. And it's, it is to the point where it's not just that we're struggling, it's that we, we can't, we're not paying our bills. We're just not paying our bills. You know, if if you even get the rent covered, it's it's like a miracle if you get the rent covered. So a lot of people are, you know, have subsidized living. Um, a lot of people are still living with their families. Um, if they're not living with their families, they have like a ton of roommates. There's like there's no one actually, you know, unless it's maybe like an older person that um, you know, have has already worked twenty twenty five years and. They've already, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people there that have gotten their pensions already um, because they're, they're retired, you know, they're retirees. So they're just pretty much paying, you know, to pay their mortgage, gas, car note, groceries, things of that nature because they already got a pension. But to me, the number one thing right now are, are the wages. The wages have to be raised because it's not matching up with the amount of labor that we're putting in. I remember earlier in the pandemic, remember when Chris Malls was first fired, you know, that there were a lot of protests over safety and it seemed like the pandemic was really actually kind of like motivating a lot of people to challenge 
the conditions there. Do you think that the pandemic was, you know, maybe like the upshot of the pandemic is that it kind of forced people to think really hard about about their conditions at work and made them, you know, want to organize? Yeah, I think the pandemic definitely was something, it, it was a major, major thing that had to do with it, of, of course. I mean, the pandemic is, I think it's pretty much what pushed the entire union movement was over the pandemic because they weren't being honest about how many people were catching COVID inside of those facilities and they weren't letting people take time off. So they were pretty much, you know, willfully exposing everyone to COVID-19 and acting like it wasn't a big deal, you know, and it's just, you, you have to understand that when you expose someone or you willfully expose someone to COVID-19, you're exposing the entire family because a lot of these people go home and, you know, they live at home, you know, either with their parents or they're living with their husband, their wife, they have kids, you know, they have other relatives that are in and out of the house. So, you know, when, if you catch COVID-19 inside of the facility, then you're going to bring it home to your family. And then it just goes on from there. Um, so I think that the pandemic definitely is is the main reason why everything started. Yeah. And lastly, um, do you have a message for anyone who's, uh, you know, whether they're at Amazon or any other business that isn't unionized so far? Any words to, to encourage them or advice or any anyone who's thinking about organizing their workplace? Um, I think that definitely... Um, strength in numbers. There's definitely strength in numbers. And it's okay um, to know that you deserve more. That was Michelle Valentin, a member of the Amazon Labor Union Workers Committee. And if you want to see more of our coverage of Amazon, check out our Belabored Live recording from April 9th during the Amazon organizing effort in Bessemer, Alabama, our interview with Dania Rajendra of the Athena Coalition in episode 195, and our report on the Amazon walkouts back in 2020, plus other coverage elsewhere at DescentMagazine.org. The workers at the Philadelphia Museum of Art voted to form a union in August of 2020, but they are still, right now, working without a contract almost two years later. This past weekend, they held a rally to demand a fair contract, and I checked in with Nicole Elizabeth Cook, the program manager for graduate academic partnerships at the PMA and a member and trustee of the PMA union. So the union saga at PMA has now been going on for a little bit of a while. Um, for people who haven't listened to earlier episodes of Belabored when we discussed this or maybe need a refresher, um, tell us where things are now and sort of how long it's been ongoing. We first started organizing in late 2019, which is a very long time ago now. Um, a lot has happened since then. Uh, and our uh, announcement of our intent to unionize and our union election unfolded over um, the spring and summer of 2020. Uh, we won our union election uh, with an 89% um, yes vote uh, in August 2020. Uh, and then we started bargaining the following month in September 2020. So it's been uh over a year and a half now that that we've been uh, bargaining at the table with the museum management team. Ah, the joys of bargaining. Yeah, I think this is a thing because obviously this week on our podcast, we're also talking about the Amazon union election, um, which is very exciting. But I think um, 
contrasting this with like the length of time it takes to get to a contract is, is feels useful. So um, tell us a little bit about sort of what has, I don't want to say what's taken so long, but I guess what the process has been like. Sure. Uh, well, the first thing I'll say, uh, which most organizers would say as well, is that first union contracts are the hardest contract to win. Um, it, you're starting from scratch. You're building a whole you know, complicated, long legal document that then becomes an agreement uh, that is legally binding. So it is both long and complicated and also really important to get correct. That said, uh, we uh, we do feel like we've been at the bargaining table for a long time. And I also think that the general attitude on the part of the, the senior management team that's in, specifically involved in, in bargaining has uh, not been that interested in kind of um, compromise uh, at various points. There are, there are certain kind of sticking points that we're getting to now that have been sticking points since early on and, and kind of they're they're sort of in this handful of things that are left on the on the table at this point that we don't have agreement on, um, and so some of that has to do with getting into the thornier issues of compensation and benefits, which is where we are right now. Then some of it has to do with non-economic issues, um, and specifically, uh, we would like to include in our contract. Uh, a section where the museum agrees to uphold its own sexual harassment policy. Uh, I think that's really important to a lot of our members uh, because just around the time that we started organizing in earnest, there was also a major sexual harassment and other forms of harassment scandal um, that came out in early 2020, uh, where we, uh, the New York Times reported that multiple mid-level and senior level managers at the museum were harassing their staff um, in various ways. And so we think it's really important that there is a part of the contract that has to do uh, with protecting uh, staff at the, at the museum from sexual and other forms of harassment. And that, that's one example of a non-economic issue that the museum management team uh, has really refused to budge on so far. I wish I was surprised. I always wish I was surprised. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this weekend, um, you all had a rally, an event. Um, so tell us how that went and sort of what the, um, the purpose of, of bringing people together like that was. It was so much fun. It was really, I, you know, I, I've been pretty cautious. I haven't been going out much um, mm-hmm. and, and uh, not doing a lot of public celebrating, but it was just, it was such a beautiful moment. It's the best time I've had on a Friday in recent memory. Um, we had such a great turnout. Hundreds of people were there. Um, we had politicians uh, come, local artists and uh, other union members, uh, union siblings across the city. Uh, and we really felt like this was the right moment to remind people about where we are in bargaining, that we're really still at it, that we have our union in place, but we still don't have that contract. So we don't truthfully have many of the, the benefits that come along with having a, a union contract in, in place. And 
our Philadelphia community, our labor community, our arts community, uh, these communities were all so uh, supportive of us during our election and kind of early on. And uh, we really feel like now is the time to be moving towards the conclusion and, and getting that contract in place. And it just seems like the perfect opportunity to re-engage our, our communities too. And uh, AFSME, um, our international has also been so incredibly helpful and, and pivotal in, in helping draw attention to to us and where we are in, in bargaining too. Yeah. And so you're in a union with public sector workers around Philadelphia. Um, talk a little bit about that, actually, because I think it's an interesting connection, right, to say that even if yeah. you are not technically public sector workers, you are in another way, very important public sector workers. Yeah, it, it is an interesting situation. Um, we're not a city or municipal museum. Uh, so the, the Philadelphia Museum of Art is a private nonprofit, but it's one that's been an incredibly central cultural institution within the, the history of Philadelphia, um, I think. And an important major uh, large uh, work site as well in, in the city um, since it was first built back in the, the early part of the 20th century. Uh, so it um, it's a building and a site that has a lot of connections to the city. We have collections that the museum cares for, but which are technically um, owned by the city and meant for the enjoyment of the, the people of Philadelphia. Um, so the city also practically um, owns and manages a lot of the land around the museum. We have agreements uh, for things like um, utilities and subsidizing those costs. Um, so while we're, we're, t- we're not city employees, um, there is a history of city employees being employed at the museum. And we do, I think, as the, um, as the major art museum uh, within the city community, uh, I think that we have this kind of I sometimes describe it as a, a quasi-municipal mm-hmm. <laughs> status. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's such an important way to think about what museums are and do. And of course, I, I always have to say this every time I talk about the PMA, that my first labor story ever was about the security guards at the PMA. So I have a lot of feelings about all this. Um, but yes. so what are what are next steps now? You, you've had the rally. Um, is there another bargaining session scheduled? What is next and how can people support you? Thanks so much for asking that. Um, yeah, we, we have an active letter writing campaign uh, that's still active right now. Um, so I'll start by saying that. And um, I can provide some links if people would like to send letters to uh, members of the PMA board uh, to let them know that there are other people uh, that would also like to see us uh, achieve our first contract and get that in place. And, and the time is now. We are uh, in the process of getting our next bargaining session scheduled. Uh, and now that we are, um, we have basically all of the issues on the table, so to speak, and um, we will continue to be bargaining in good faith and keeping everyone posted about how things are going. Following us on social is also a great way to know what we're doing and, and know about ways to support us um, at different critical moments. and. I would also just like to give a huge shout out and say thank you to everyone who did come in person to the rally, everyone who kind of tweeted or followed along on social with us. It was just really amazing to feel that support. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Anything else people should know before I let you go? 
Uh, yeah, fo- follow us on social. And by all means, if you're in the Philadelphia area, come by the PMA. Um, you can also leave a, a comment when you're at the museum uh, for, with your support of the union um, and let the museum know what you think. Uh, and in general, also just follow along with all of the other museums that are and cultural orgs that are in the process of organizing. As I said, AFSME has uh, been such a great support for our local um, and uh, their cultural workers united initiative um, is also a great thing to follow and really connects different cultural organizing across the country. That was Nicole Cook of the Philadelphia Museum of Art Union. And we have links at the Descent website to how you can follow Nicole and the union and help them get their first contract. Last episode, you heard a little bit from today's guest as she joined us to discuss the firings of 800 workers by P&O ferries in Britain. This week, we are pleased to bring you our extended conversation with the brilliant Lala Khalili, professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London and the author of Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula from Verso. Her book illuminates the way colonialism, war, and globalized capitalism have shaped the world we live in and how our world continues to be shaped by struggles happening far away on the Arabian Peninsula. This conversation is part of our ongoing intermittent series on the supply chain, logistics work, and organizing. You can listen back to our recent interviews with Beth Gutelius on warehousing, Steve Vichelli on truckers, and Charmaine Schwa on global shipping. And now, here's Lala Khalili. So talking about Dubai Ports World is a great way into um, all of the issues in your book, getting its start as a port management company, but also doing all of these other things, buying these companies that are these old colonial shipping companies. You write in your book, the story of P&O's acquisition by Dubai Ports World is a story of the transformation of capital in the Arabian Peninsula. So I wonder if sort of we can use that as a way to talk about this complicated web of sort of alliances and cross ownership and states and private companies that make up shipping in general and shipping in the Arabian Peninsula in particular. Yes, of course. So shipping is a really interesting business. In part, it is a really interesting business because both the infrastructure, the fixed infrastructure that it requires, i.e. ports, um, and the equipment that it requires, i.e. mega ships, um, tankers, gas carriers, container ships, uh, bulk carriers, all require enormous amounts of capital investment. And that means that often the kinds of um, companies that uh, make the kinds of investments in, in both the infrastructures and the ports tend to want to protect their capital in all sorts of interesting ways. Which means that in a lot of these, um, when we're looking at shipping at the top end of uh, most of the business, what we see in it is an enormous amount of private or family-owned businesses in the shipping area or state-owned shipping because of the capital requirements. And in the case of um, the, the ports, we see increasingly securitized consortia, sometimes with local uh, governments or regional governments or states having a stake in this. But increasingly also private firms having essentially the sort of the majority control or ownership. 
more often control rather than ownership over these ports. And this is the case that the kind of opacity and lack of transparency in this business and sort of the, the secrecy within the business is not limited to the Arabian Peninsula, which, uh, you know, which of course is not what my book is about, but it is also all of these companies. So the top three biggest shipping companies in the world are located in Europe, Maersk and uh, MSC and CMA CGM, and all of them are family owned businesses. So in fact, you know, the public has absolutely no right to look into the businesses that they take up. And they themselves, these shipping companies, enter deals with various kinds of port management companies. And the deals that they enter with the port management companies means that they get preferential treatment for their ships in that port, but also they emerge out of establishing certain domains of business. So Maersk has its own, um, Maersk is a Danish company, but it has a Danish Dutch uh, port management company called APM Terminals, which is a major terminal operator, container terminal operator in a lot of the world. And of course, the the kinds of decision making that goes into that business um, is, is determined by where Maersk wants to do business, but where also the business is. So in a sense, that is important. What is interesting about Dubai Ports World is that it is now the fourth largest port management company in the world after three companies, which are uh, two of them are based in China, Hong Kong and China, mainland. And the other one is uh, based in Singapore. And then it's Dubai Ports World. And Dubai Ports World has become such an enormous sort of a monster of a of a port management company, in part because it is based out of Dubai. It is owned by, largely if once you peel off all the different layers, it is owned by the ruling family of Dubai. And it is, in a sense, a kind of a transformation of Dubai from a small merchant city-state into one of the major entrepot ports uh, between Europe and uh, Asia, and one of the significant, most important sort of ports of transit for goods to be spread throughout the Middle East and South Asia and East Africa. And so Dubai Ports World is essentially becoming a kind of a uh, regional capital powerhouse, which, like any other mega capitalist business, takes advantage of um, the less powerful um, and, uh, and, and, of course, the proletariat that, that, that make that labor possible. Right. And I, I find so much of this history so fascinating and I wish we had more time to sort of get deeper into it. But, um, I did want to talk about one of the things you write about so well in this book is the way that, that states and colonial power paved the way for capital accumulation, the way that these markets and indeed the ports are not natural, but are constructed sometimes very much against nature. Um, so I was wondering if we could talk about sort of the port of Aden as an example of how power shifted over time and how these ports are sort of constructed and then deconstructed. Absolutely. The port of Aden, which uh, sits on the corner, the most, uh, one of the su- almost southernmost corner of the Arabian Peninsula and overlooks the Horn of Africa, it sits on um, at the entrance to the Bab al-Mandab, which is the entryway into uh, the Red Sea going towards Suez Canal. And so it essentially sits astride about 12% of um, the world trade going through that um, port. It is, you would imagine the port of Aden to be one of the most significant ports in the world. But of course, it has been destroyed into the into rubble for the last, um, over the course of the last six or seven years. But more importantly, Aden was historically, a millennium ago, was a significant port for the transportation 
interpretation of things like frankincense and hide and other kinds of goods that were produced, agricultural goods as well, that were produced in um, the mountains of southern Arabia. It uh, slowly declined, in part because of the difficulty of securing water, potable water for the city. But eventually, at a time when the British were beginning to, uh, when the uh, East India Company, the British East India Company's ships were switching from sail to coal, and following that, the Admiralty, so, so British naval ships were also switching to coal, Britain started to look to different points in the world where it could use them as coaling stations, because obviously you can't carry a huge amount of coal. Coal is the kind of thing that you need to constantly refuel with. And so what we find is that essentially a kind of a chain of island locations and also uh, city-states and also um, peninsulas were located throughout the world, which were then used um, as, as coaling stations. And in fact, elements of that colonial history remains. The Falklands were coaling stations. St. Helena Island was a coaling station. Malta was a coaling station. And Aden ended up becoming a particularly important coaling station because it was equidistant between India and Europe. And this was before the Suez Canal was constructed. So the, so the British colonized Aden in 1838. The Suez Canal was constructed in the 1850s and inaugurated later in, in the 19th century. And for that reason, Aden ended up becoming this enormously important linchpin uh, in, in British Empire. At some point, it was the fourth largest fueling port in the world after London, New York, and Liverpool. And once coal switched to oil, it continued to be significant because of its proximity to the oil um, sort of producing regions of um, the Gulf. And there was a major refinery there. And so it continued to have this role. And then, of course, Aden ended up decolonizing. There was a, there was an extremely ardent anti-colonial struggle that started there, um, in earnest, um, after the Second World War and really picked up in the 1950s. And the British treated it with extraordinary brutality, torture, um, and violence. Um, and, um, and once they decolonized, once the country decolonized, um, at the end of 19th 67 and beginning of 1968, the British packed up and left, but they also shunted all of the businesses that they had there to Dubai. And so what we find is that Aden, which has this extremely felicitous location, which has a harbor that is naturally deep and naturally still protected, sheltered from the wind, and which it has you know, it, it, it continues to sit astride Bobble Mandap and halfway between Asia and Europe. And so despite all of this, Aden retreated. What we also find is that in the interim, there has been an attempt, uh, no longer by the British, but by actually regional power and particularly Dubai Ports World, to get a handle on Aden, to, to get control over Aden. And they've not been able to. They tried to do so in the 1990s and they had such terrible management of the port that eventually they were forced to give up their contract um, over the management of the port. And, and I think in a way, it um, feels like a terrible payback against Aden, that it has been destroyed to the extent that it has by the saudi Emirati coalition against it. Because it seems to me that it could be um, an enormously important Port. It still is. It has one of the most active labor movements anywhere. It has a, a very vibrant civil society, and yet it has been genuinely bombed into um, submission. 
Yeah. um, I was going to ask you if you could tell us about the strike in 1948 there that you write about in the book, because um, I thought it was such a fascinating story. So the 1948 strike begins in part because the workers in the British petroleum facilities there were, at the time it was Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, were actually very concerned about the pay. And the pay was outrageously low. A few months before the strikes begin, somebody from the uh, British Treasury um, is in Aden and does a study of the amount of pay that people are receiving and realizes that the amount of pay that people receive for their work on the ports is actually not enough for them to even survive, that they constantly are going into debt in order to to be able to pay for very basic things. And so when the report comes out, um, talks begin, rumors begin to circulate among the workers in all of the ports. And um, and particularly in the um, Anglo-Iranian oil company facilities, and strikes start. And the strikes are, are happening through whisper networks, because of course, there are no unions there. And these strikes are essentially wildcat strikes. And they begin to spread not only in the British Petroleum or AIOC facilities, Anglo-Iranian facilities, but also in other bits of the ports. And what is really fascinating about this is that we, uh, the, the rumors are that uh, there's a very large population of Somalis that live in Aden, in part because Somalia is um, literally 13 miles um, away across the across the Bob Al-Mandab. And um, and it was known that the Somali workers who had had um, hi- histories of unionization and organization in Somali and Somaliland, that they were, to some extent, were very active in the act of mobilizing. It was also uh, particularly interesting because these whisper networks, the, the kind of um, uh, strikes that were happening in all sorts of places were also affecting the work of goods being brought in by the merchants. Some of these merchants were local merchants, some of them were British, and some of them were uh, Parsi Indian merchants that had established businesses there. When the strike happens, of course, um, the Anglo-Iranian oil company is very concerned, in part because there are huge ships that are traveling from the Pacific and from Asia, um, carrying passengers, because at this point, people are still traveling when they travel oceanically. Um, they're traveling by sea. And of course, there's also post-Second World War demobilization is happening. And also pre and post-partition sort of preparing for Indian partition uh, is um, uh, happening. And so there is a huge number of ships that are crossing through, that are going through at the time of the strike. And so the Anglo-Iranian oil company really wanted to be able to continue refueling, but the strikes were preventing it. There are interesting bits in the archival documents where the office workers in their white um, shirt sleeves were going out onto the port and trying to refuel the ships. What is really fascinating is that once this happens, the headquarters of Anglo-Iranian in, in, in London orders the company in Aden to raise the prices. But this is met with enormous anger by the local and Indian merchants in, in the area because they feel that the, um, the Anglo-Iranian oil company is throwing them under the bus. And there's some really interesting um, exchanges in these texts where, for example, a Parsi merchant um, complains that what the Anglo-Iranian is doing is reducing the prestige of white man's laws. And so what you find is this kind of an intense brew of um, 
anti-colonial fervor. There is certainly elements of it traveling there from the Horn of Africa and from India. Some of it is very, very natively produced by um, Yemenis and Adenis who have now been exposed to forms of mobilization. And what is really interesting is that one of the lawyers that eventually ends up representing some of the workers, Abdullah Al-Asnaj, ends up being quite a significant um, anti-colonial figure um, in the in the next two decades. And so this is 1948, this port strike ends up being an extremely significant moment in sort of that process of decolonization in Aden. Yeah. There's a million things I want to get into, but I wanted to start with sort of talking about, um, because you mentioned the port of Aden being, having this vibrant labor movement, I wanted to talk about the way these ports get constructed in places that make very little physical sense for them to be, in part to get away from some of those vibrant labor movements, right? And the way that they end up getting sort of separated into these weird zones and the issue of free ports and all of that. Um, So yeah, I guess I wanted to start out by sort of just asking you to tell us a little bit about how some of these ports are constructed, maybe Jabal Ali is a good example, and how the labor that goes into constructing them and then keeping them running gets sort of separated out from the rest of the country. Yeah. So one of the things that is really interesting about Jabal Ali is that it uh, boasts about being um, the largest man-made harbor in the world. And of course, that boast is true. Um, Jabal Ali uh, was, uh, the construction in Jabal Ali really started um, in earnest in the 1980s. And in, uh, in, in fact, at first, it emerged as a kind of a warehousing site for another port in Dubai, Port Rashid, which is actually more centrally located in Dubai itself. Jabal Ali is about 50 kilometers away from the sort of the central core of Dubai itself. And what is also significant about this was that the location of Jabal Ali was chosen not only because of geographic or economic considerations, but because it was hard up against the border with Abu Dhabi. And it was chosen in that moment where the uh, Emirates were federating, so Dubai, Abu Dhabi, um, Sharjah, and a number of other um, smaller and poorer um, Emirates were federating into United Arab Emirates. And of course, the two biggest ones, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, um, had border disputes. Um, and so this, by putting Jabal Ali where it is now located, um, almost on the border with the Emirate of Abu Dhabi, what the Emir of Dubai was doing was ensuring that that border was, that his Emirates border was pinned to that location. But it originally started off essentially as a free zone for Port Rashid. And then as time went on and a variety of wars in the region essentially increased uh, the, the significance of Dubai as a port of transit, a kind of a neutral port of transit for all of these different wars, the war between Iran and Iraq, the subsequent um, desert storm, US war and Iraq, this, uh, and and, and the, um, all of the various other subsequent conflicts, um, Jabal Ali grew in size. Dubai also run, ran out of oil fairly quickly after it, um, it discovered some. And so its focus on what it had done and done well as a merchant economy over the course of centuries or decades, um, continued thereafter. Now, what is interesting about the construction at Jabal Ali 
is that, of course, it sits, um, like all of the other ports on the Gulf, um, on a body of water that, unlike, for example, where Aden is located, um, it's a quite a shallow body of water. It has a sandy bottom, and the sandy bottom is very subject to currents. So in order for you to, to be able to actually get a ship into Jabal Ali, you have to get these ships, which have increasingly deeper and deeper drafts. They, they are deeper and deeper, especially when they're laden. You have to get them into these channels that have been dredged in order to be deep enough to be able to accommodate these very big ships. And you have to constantly dredge them because when the shamal wind, which is like a harmaton, uh, blows um, across, it not only causes sandstorms, but it also affects water currents, which affects the subsea sand, which affects the depth of the water in that location. And so you constantly have to dredge this. In addition to that, you obviously have to have things like breakwaters and you have to have these concrete harbors. And so you have to have huge amounts of concrete that goes into this. And of course, as um, your listeners know, concrete is made with a cement and aggregate. And aggregate is a mix of sand and gravel. Um, and it has to be, in order for concrete to be quite strong, um, the, the, the aggregate has to be very unevenly shaped and also of different sizes in order for that concrete to be able to hold. And so the the best kind of sand that can go into concrete is actually river sand or beach sand, so water eroded sand rather than wind eroded sand. And so in order for that construction at Jabal Ali to happen, as it has done for, for example, Singapore, huge amounts of sand has had to be imported from places which have riparine economies. Um, Places like, for example, Cambodia or Myanmar, where, where they have major rivers. And so these major rivers, in fact, need to be essentially dredged and huge amounts of sand taken out of them in order to be transported into there. What that results in is, of course, environmental damage to these places. In addition to that, you have to have huge amounts of labor that goes into the construction of these ports. And of course, what you find in Dubai, as you do in most of the Gulf, is that much of this labor is migrant labor that has been brought in that does not uh, enjoy the protection of a union or any form of labor laws, um, which are deportable, easily deportable. Unions are banned. Direct action is banned. And so, of course, what you find is an extremely coercive regime of exploitation um, to which people uh, acquiesce in part because, of course, um, remittances are so central to the survival, not only of these households, but also of some of the countries um, from which these workers hail. Yeah, you write about the racialized hierarchy of labor that, again, started under colonialism and the way that like workers are sort of moved around in order to find the the formula for the most exploitable labor, I guess. Yes. So one of the things that I was actually quite surprised to find in the archives was the explicitness with which the British actually engineered populations in these gulfs in order for them to prevent the possibility of political mobilization. There are specific texts where the British Labour attaché is writing a letter to the American Labour attaché for the Middle East, who's based in Beirut, and who says very specifically that we cannot have more of these Arabs working on these ports, because if we have Arabs, for example, from Palestine or from Jordan or from Syria or Iraq or Egypt, that they could demand things. And if they're from the countries that have nationalist governments, those nationalist governments could agitate on behalf of their workers. And so there is a very explicit way in which they talk about how they can bring in workers that don't speak the same language 
privilege that can be uh, oppressed in these particular ways, in part, and exploited in these particular ways, in part because their governments are so desperate for their remittances that they're quite happy to send those workers over there and they won't raise hell. And so you, you see this kind of an engineering of population of workers happening. You also see that whereas the British encouraged the establishment of unions in Aden, um, in Bahrain to some extent, and in Kuwait to some extent, because they thought that what the unions could do would be to channel workers into, in, into a kind of a more uh, corporatist form of unionization. Um, what they found was that even in those places where they, they tried to sort of have these docile unions, they absolutely failed. Whereas in the early parts of the post-war era, they had these, um, that the, the establishment of unions was something that they were encouraging. From the 1950s onwards, they were like, no way, you cannot have unions <laughs> because they because they will, they will essentially agitate. And that was actually written into the laws of many of these places. Mm-hmm. And so unions have been banned. What we see now is really interesting modes of organizing where, for example, the unions in both Kuwait and Bahrain um, are only allowed to recruit among nationals and they're only allowed to recruit in state-owned companies rather than private firms. Um, but they're beginning to sort of organize, not with representative organizations of the workers there, but with their unions back home. So like, for example, enter agreements, there's a, there's a, um, a an early career scholar by the name of Alex Budrukas, who's written really interesting stuff about this, about how these kinds of organizations, but for example, between Kuwaiti and Filipino workers, can actually protect the Filipino workers in Kuwait, despite the fact that the unions in Kuwait cannot recruit Filipino workers. Mm, that's really interesting. What is the kafala system? Because we've heard about this in, in terms of, I think people may have heard about it in, in the uh, construction of stadiums in Dubai, but um, yeah. you know, what is it and what does it work? So the kafala system historically emerged as a kind of a form of noblesse oblige. It emerged in the pearling era uh, when a lot of these um, smaller emirates on the Gulf were um, their primary, actually, one of their primary outputs was um, natural pearls that were found in the Persian Gulf. And the noblesse oblige process in this was that if you hired somebody to work for you, you were responsible for their food and drink, and essentially they were beholden to you for their work. So it was a kind of a feudal, if you will, uh, set of relations. Um, that has That was, again, written into the laws of... Um, labor laws of these emirates by the British um, once the British uh, entered protectorate agreements with these emirates, which they held um, until 1971 for most of the emirates, 61 for Kuwait. And the kafala system essentially means that there are very strict uh, laws. You are recruited if you're from some part of the world where sends workers to the Gulf. You're recruited by recruitment agencies. Your passport is taken up by your employer. And once you are employed by that employer, they are responsible for you and it is impossible for you to go looking for a job. So this is... um it's essentially a visa system, which we see elements that are similar to it, actually, uh, with, for example, seasonal worker visas in the US or in the EU. So these are, these are similar kinds of things. But of course, 
the problem is that in most of the Gulf, uh, the there are no mechanisms for overseeing whether or not even the minimal kinds of protections that the kafala laws put into place are observed. And so what we find are that um, workers are brought in large numbers, their passports are confiscated, they are subjected to enormously terrible working conditions. They're often put up in barrack-like existences. They're not allowed to bring in their families. And because they're bachelors, they're are banned from certain parts of the city because people don't want them. There's an entire kind of a mythology that they harass people around them. Um, and so they are, they are very much physically limited and they are exploited to the nth degree. And, and of course, they cannot leave that particular employer because their passports are held and they are beholden to that employer. Now, one of the interesting things is that whenever international events happen in one of these Gulf countries, various kinds of labor organizations, both local, um, regional, and global try to use those events as a leverage in order to get um, the, the laws changed. So there was some minor adjustments made in Qatar, for example, in response to the World Cup stadiums being built there. But the extent to which such pressure can actually work and whether or not those regulations that sort of try to soften the effects of kafala um in fact you know they, they they don't tend to be enforced even even the minimal amounts of it don't tend to be enforced right i wanted to ask about particularly the role of palestinians in in all of this but um in general the way that you write about um port worker action often has a political element beyond just the immediate labor conditions yep. um and that this happens all around the world right that solidarity of port workers around various political issues is fairly common. Yeah, it is really amazing because, of course, um, you you often find that unions are very directly political. Tim Mitchell, in his amazing book, um, Carbon Democracy, precisely argues that um, that it is all impossible to separate out the sort of the uh, bread and butter issues, workplace issues from larger democratic issues. And he talks about the sort of the mass democratic uh, apparatuses that emerged out of, for example, coal workers working in large numbers and being able to have leverage over the political system. So that separation between bread and butter issues and political issues is also something that has to be artificially enforced. And we really don't see it. I certainly didn't see it in my archival work. The affection with which the workers in the Gulf held Palestinians is obvious throughout all of these um, documents. In fact, I'm actually, I have to make sure that I name somebody here. I'm examining a PhD soon by a uh, young um, scholar out of Exeter called Kanwal Abdelhamid, which is precisely about these forms of both labor and students mobilization on behalf of Palestinians. And it is fascinating to see that for them, the Palestinian cause was not solely a political cause. It was actually an economic cause as well, because they saw it as a modality through which a kind of a rapacious capitalism was coming in and enforcing particular forms of geopolitical alignments in the region. And so, of course, this is all happening during the Cold War. And you you do have vibrant underground or semi-covert socialist and communist organizations operating in a lot of these states. And so there is a sense in which they see the sort of Israeli settler colonialism as a beachhead for capitalism in the region. And so there's huge numbers of strikes around Palestinian causes. 
There's, of course, also a, a significant Palestinian presence in many of these Gulf states, because after 1948 and the expulsion of Palestinians, which started actually in 47 and went on until 49 from what was Palestine and became Israel in 48, a lot of people actually either smuggled themselves or traveled straight up to the countries in the Gulf. Hassan Kanafani's Men in the Sun is a wonderful, beautiful, heartbreaking novella precisely about this subject. So you found, for example, that at all of the different sort of levels, uh, social classes, you had a large Palestinian presence. The bureaucracies in many of these um, uh, Gulf states were Palestinians, particularly in places like Kuwait. Many of the skilled workers um, who spoke English precisely because they were coming from Palestine and therefore they were very hireable in many of these oil installations were Palestinian. But they were also seen to be quite an intransigent bunch. And so on the one hand, they were seen to be very skilled. And so they were invited. But the British also wanted to control them because they found them to be um, not docile, not obedient. And so the Palestinian presence there um, uh, was something quite astonishing. And, and it was really interesting for me because my first project had been about Palestinians. And so to find their presence running through this project as well, the, the, to, to see their presence running through these ports and construction of these facilities and the making of these infrastructures was really fascinating. Yeah, I was just thinking about the way that like the ILWU and others have have refused to unload ships from I believe Zim and the the challenges that this is, you know, created in yeah. in the unifying narrative of Israel in in the US. Yeah. But what is also interesting, I think it's really important to, I really like the block the boat movement, but I also think that, um, and, and I write about this in my book, that that is a tactic, right? And tactics can be appropriated by right-wing movements. So Joshua Clover recently had a um, an op-ed about how that same blockage tactic, a sort of a counter-logistical tactic, was used by the right-wing truckers, um, white mm-hmm. supremacist truckers in Canada. But I also write about, in the book, I also write about a much earlier instance where workers in um, New York refused to unload an Egyptian ship uh, precisely because they found... Even though Egypt was an anti-colonial state, it was um, ruled by Nasser. But because Egypt was in a state of hostility with Israel, these states uh, decided to unload, um, decided not to unload an Egyptian ship. And so, again, this was this is quite an actually quite a right-wing tactic because um, uh, the the attachments there. um, There's no analysis of settler colonialism. There's no sense of third-world solidarity. And so, I think um, again, this is a this is a blockage tactic, and was deployed in the 1950s, um, but in this instance was deployed in ways by by left-wing actors, but in Mm. ways that today we look at and we perhaps don't quite understand how they could have taken a pro-colonial position or a pro-settler colonial position in that instance. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we we have talked about the history of, uh, you know, wildcat strikes among workers because they didn't want their unions to integrate. So, um, yeah, tactics, right. So I wanted to, before we get to the workers on the ship, um, I want to talk a little bit more about free ports, which we discussed previously, because they become not just ports, but places where labor law is different. And so there's actually like manufacturing happening in some of these free ports. So yeah, can you explain this a little bit more? Yeah. So free ports are actually, you know, they go back quite a long ways, but they were really genuinely consolidated under, under colonialism. And they were essentially... Um, certain ports designated by colonial powers and the British were particularly good at this as places that were free ports where fees didn't apply and they essentially allowed for those ports to be ports of transit. So 
goods were brought in one from one location and distributed in another way. And that sort of a free port status allowed for these places, these ports, these islands often to function as a kind of a pivot point in the empire. Very often these pivot points were also coaling stations, etc. So I think that that was also part, part of it, was that they were essentially sort of mechanisms uh, for the maintenance of um, transoceanic um, uh, colonialism. But in the 20th century, starting in the 20th century, we see the emergence of free ports as something else. There's quite a bit of it that emerges in uh, the U.S. Dara Ornstein has written about them in relation to warehousing in the U.S. and the sort of the laws around warehouses there. And Patrick Neveling has written some really fascinating stuff about the way that free trade zones were actually enforced on countries where the U.S., and in particularly after the Second World War, where the U.S. was concerned about the possibility of communist mobilization among the workers. And so this was kind of part of that whole complexion of um, seven stages of growth, the, the kind of an anti-communist manifesto where you saw developmental policies that could be enforced in these countries where there was um, enormous amounts of poverty in order to prevent them from going communist. And so what Nevelin found in his work was that there was an entire complex of sort of consulting firms that went into these places and they set up uh, free trade zones, often around ports. That has now evolved and uh, the World Bank recommended free trade zones con continues to do so in a lot of places. And they have essentially become a kind of a tool of suppressing labor laws, in part because what they do is they become these places in which regular labor laws, possibly environmental laws, possibly incorporation laws are suspended. They become onshore places that have actually have offshore rules. And, um, and often a lot of these free trade zones emerge around transport infrastructures, in part because um, they become sites of manufacturing and services. And of course, those transport infrastructures facilitate the transportation of goods that might be required for those manufacturing. And so you see, for example, around Jabal Ali, a massive uh, free trade zone in which those laws are suspended. Dubai has something like 42 free trade zones, some of which are not by the port. Some of them are by the airport. Some of them are, for example, the Dubai International Financial Center uh, or the Media City. So all of these different places which have city names after them in many of these places tend to be free trade zones where essentially what minimal uh, federal um, or city-state laws may be to protect labor are suspended in, in the interest of capital accumulation. Joy. Um, so to the ship, we had Charmaine Chua on um, several weeks ago now talking about container ships, but I wanted to talk about tanker ships, yeah. which you write about, and that will get us into oil at the end here. But um, And the way that tanker ships have also gotten massive and operate with much less labor. But yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that, that history and the, the way they run? So... What is really interesting is that many of the things that we recognize as kind of travesties of labor uh, exploitation aboard container ships were actually first experimented upon on tankers. Tankers, you know, sort of ships that carried oil, not in barrels, but rather uh, as, as bulk uh, within the hull of the ship, emerged quite early on uh, in uh, the 20th century. And, and their shipping, the Shell Trading Company, which was actually a trading company, not an oil exploration company, starts to buy oil from Azerbaijan and wants to ship it through the Suez Canal to Asia. 
And so what is fascinating about that is that in order to do that, they found that it would be much more cost effective if they had the oil carried in bulk in the hull of the ship. Um, there had been a precedent for that on uh, Russian rivers by the Nobel family, famously of the Nobel Prize. And uh, of course, one of their brothers, the, the brother who invented uh, funded, endowed the Nobel Prize, was an inventor of TNT. But the other brothers were actually in the oil business in Azerbaijan, which was part of the Russian Empire at that point. And so the Nobels had were the first to actually invent these um, uh, tankers. In fact, tankers that also use fuel oil. So, so this was one of the first instances of ships using fuel oil to power themselves. But these tankers were essentially mostly traveling. The Nobel tankers were mostly traveling on Volga and other um, uh, navigable rivers in Russia. What Shell Company did was to actually um, transform this business into a transoceanic one. And so the first ship that they had, Murex, went through the Suez Canal and arrived in the port of Singapore. And there was an entire infrastructure that was built around that. Now, what was interesting about this particular transportation event was that it, of course, showed that, number one, it is possible for ships to burn fuel oil. Number two, this was much more efficient than coal. So the amount of refueling needed and also the amount of fuel that needed to be carried on board the ship was less than what it would be for coal. Number three, it was much easier to load and unload a ship because all you had to do was essentially attach a hose to the hull of the ship and load it up with oil rather than have people carry coal on their backs or even with cranes into the hull of the ship. And so it became clear that this was a a significantly easier commodity to transport. Of course, the problem is, or the problem was uh, for this commodity, was that despite the fact that it showed, Shell showed that it could cut labor back, it could, it was one of the first insta uh, major instances of shipboard automation. One of the problems was, of course, that most things that operated with coal would have to be adapted to operate with oil, number one. And number two, you'd have to have infrastructures in order to be able to receive the oil and in order to be able to sell it on. And so one of the, again, innovations of Shell was that even before they ever sent out the Murex on you know, the first transoceanic tanker, they had built up uh, storage and pipelines and receiving areas at the port of Singapore in Asia. And so there was a particular way that it ended up this kind of a vertical integration of the process of transportation was made from the very uh, start to be quite automated, to not need a lot of workers. And we see that actually, um, we see that definitely in, in the way that um, tankers are happening now. As early as the 1950s, long before container ships were the method through which bulk goods could be carried. Long before that, New York Times, for example, carried these um, uh, items about how tankers, uh, the work aboard tankers was a lonely work because there were so, so, so many fewer tanker men aboard these ships and there were so fewer dockers needed at the docks to receive tankers. In addition to that, tankers, because they were bigger, they had to be loaded further away. And of course, that meant that um, the tanker men couldn't have as much of a time into the cities for R&R. But also importantly, this meant that ports could be further and further away from cities, which of course um, prevented the, the workers from getting any sort of support if they engaged in any kind of industrial action.
Yeah. And I, I was fascinated by this because, of course, the word strike actually comes from ships, particularly sailing ships, as, as people would strike the sails. Yes. But you noted that strikes on board ships are just impossibly rare at this point. They are. And, and part of it is because of the transformation of um, shipping, uh, the advent of flags of convenience, which is essentially ships following the rules of the flag that they uh, fly. And many of these flags of convenience are in places where they do not have any kind of labor laws. But it also means that you also have... Um, because many of these ship, actually the vast majority of shipping companies do not employ the seafarers. The seafarers are essentially constantly agency workers. So in, in, in a way, if you will, shipping, um, in the 20th century was a kind of a forerunner of the kind of a gig economy type mm. of employment where people are working, um, enormous labor, but they are not counted as employees. And so that also makes it very difficult to organize seafarers in that particular way. Um, there has, there have been instances of strikes, but precisely for these reasons, and because of the way that the because of the way that shipping companies can muster access to different kinds of national laws to whatever benefits them best, and because courts have been quite happy to indulge them, we find that um, strikers cannot actually find um, solace um, through striking on board the ships themselves. Um, I think a much more effective method um, of striking is if, if the seafarers banded together with dockers, because obviously mm. dockers, because they're in a location, often they do because they often they are not in a casualized situation precisely because they have organized for such a long time that kind of mobilization is much easier for them to do yeah so oil is of course on everyone's mind right now because the russian invasion of ukraine has sent oil prices skyrocketing a bunch of your book is about how war and the uh need for provisioning war has shaped the economies in the arabian peninsula and everywhere so how are we seeing today's war shaping sort of oil transport and the fortunes of some of these places we've talked about? So it's really interesting because um, just today, just before I actually started speaking to you, I saw a news item about uh, the International Transport Workers Federation mentioning that there are about a thousand seafarers right now trapped on ships on the Sea of Azov, unable to leave and actually quite endangered. And we ha we hear about sort of the bombings of cities and ports, um, but we haven't... Um, uh, really, if you, unless you're looking for it, which of course I'm looking for it, um, there, we haven't heard very much about the bombings of ships. And there have been a number of seafarers that have been killed because of missiles that have been fired at their civilian ships. And so there's quite a lot of seafarers actually in danger at this moment. We also have interesting seafarer actions that are going on in some places where, for example, in uh, the UK, um, unionized seafarers refused to unload a, a ship carrying Russian gas. And interesting, they use that occasion to also complain about flags of convenience because that particular mm. ship that they refused to unload was carrying Russian gas, but it was flagged to a flag of convenience. And therefore, it fell through certain governmental loopholes around sanctions on Russia. So we're finding these interesting ways that labor is affecting this. What we're also finding interesting is that, of course, um, in Europe, uh, Germany in particular, Germany and Italy in particular, are dependent on Russian natural gas for not only the provision of energy, but also for industrial work. And they, of course, questions of petrol, etc. Um, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there has been some changes to the way that the pipelines operate. So Germans stopped receiving natural gas through the pipeline that runs through Ukraine, but they do still continue to receive 
Russian natural gas through pipelines that come through the Baltics. But there has also been an increase in Algerian and Norwegian natural gas provision to the continent. And of course, we're now seeing also the US putting a huge amount of natural gas um, on ships and shipping it, actually. This had already started happening even before the invasion, in part because of the inc- incredibly high natural gas prices and the run-up to the invasion, which has just gone up through the roof further. Um, but we, yeah, so there's, so there's a lot of, in terms of, in maritime sense, there's quite a lot of movement that is going on on ships, you know, uh, um, transporting oil and gas um, to Europe and also to other places. What is, I think, quite disheartening through the, this process has been, and, and this is unrelated to shipping, really, is the extent to which the increase in the price of oil and gas, um, which partially has to do not necessarily with any diminution in the amount of oil and gas that is flowing, but rather with the speculation in financial markets on on um, on hydrocarbon derivatives um, and options. Because of that, the prices are going up. And what we're seeing is that a lot of countries that just a few months ago in COP26 made some kind of a highfalutin, high-minded promises to the protection of environment are actually undermining all of their promises by, for example, subsidizing petrol, by, for example, reducing the amount of taxes on petrol, etc., including the British government. And so th- this is unrelated to maritime stuff, but what we're seeing is um, a kind of the devastating long-term effects that this um, that the war can have um, in, in, ter- in environmental terms, but also in labor terms. Yeah. Well, I did want to bring in environmental terms for my last question, because you write about this sort of element of fantasy in ports and shipping, and particularly the fantasy of getting rid of the messiest element of the whole process, which is, of course, still human labor. Um, and so I do think like climate change plays into this question, um, more supply chain disruptions. Do you have any sort of last thoughts about where we might see these fantasies of automation playing out and where workers will still be necessary and be able to sort of throw a wrench in the gears? Workers will always be necessary because those fantasies of frictionless trade, which sees, for example, automated everything, are actually just that. They are actually genuinely fantasies. And what I mean by that is that there is a sense in which um, labor never goes away. It just it just changes. And often what the effects of automation are is the creation of a smaller layer of highly skilled and highly paid workers and a much larger layer of skilled, but also, but not very well paid workers who have to be there to to ensure the smooth operation of machines that really cannot self-repair. And so so this kind of a fantasy of, of, of frictionless trade, the, the major point of friction in most of these fantasies is, of course, human uh, the, the human intransigence and the human organization and, and collective mobilization. And so I, my sense is that, um, that that fantasy will continue, but there will always be ways in which people will be able to push back to it. It might not necessarily be the kind of a heroic manufacturing guy of old, uh, you know, muscly man with his uh, biceps that are organized. It might be a female service worker of color. Um, but those jobs are not being automated, not all of them, and they will not go away and workers will have the ability to disrupt them. As other scholars have shown, the best way that they will be able to do so is through organizing with, in coalition with community organizations, Katie Fox Hodes has written about this, but also organizing across and along 
uh, in uh, the transnational supply chains, because it is really important that these forms of transnational solidarity are maintained. Without them, um, capital can suppress, can crush one group of workers in one place and shift its business to another. We need better transnational solidarity. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Lale Khalili, a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London. And this is just another mid-episode reminder to please consider supporting us on Patreon if you value the independent journalism we bring you here. As Sarah noted earlier, we are now close to a whole decade old. We've been tracking the ups and downs of the labor movement in the U.S. and around the world since before it was cool. And as labor seems to be turning another corner across the country today, we hope our listeners can pitch in to support our continued coverage of the movement's present and future. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, in which we talk about the pieces we liked but did not write. My pick for ARG is How Deindustrialization Shaped My Working Class Family by Lauren Salenza in In These Times. Salenza begins by recalling her father's first encounter with the ocean at age 40, during a rare moment of respite from the drudgery of his blue-collar job. Looking across the horizon at that quintessential symbol of freedom, the sea, her dad shrugs it off at first, but the two are transfixed. The coastline marked a threshold for them that they had never encountered together, and it revealed the limits of their social horizons as a working-class Midwestern family. Her father's daily toil took him away from the family during his long shifts, which never seemed to sync with his children's school schedules, and the constant pressures of work and financial struggles created a constricting and emotionally draining home life. At the beach, 12-year-old Salenza ponders the growing distance she feels with her father. I was used to living in a separate routine from dad, she writes, each of us immersing ourselves in our own worlds of school and work and school and work. But now it seemed as if our lives were edging towards separate realities, unquote. The gulf between them is one of culture and of class. Her dad's story traces what social scientists would call downward mobility, the American dream in reverse. He came of age in the twilight of America's industrial empire, One of his first jobs was at a golf course outside of Chicago, serving as a caddy among the rich and famous. That's where he got his first taste of the good life as a youth. Quote, the Buick wasn't merely a new car, but a declaration of loyalty. Loyalty seemed important to dad, a requirement for reaching the destination that the fathers from the golf course had mapped out for him, unquote. It reminds me of Michael Moore's reflections on the golf course in Flint, Michigan, that a lot of the factory workers were invited to enjoy as kind of a symbol of the type of lifestyle that seemed to be within reach for many blue-collar Americans at the time. When Salenza's father became an adult, it became apparent that his life was on a path that would never lead to the pristine gates of that country club he worked at. Though he managed to graduate from college, in 1985, he gravitated toward the kind of factory that had sustained generations of men before him, a bottling plant in Flint, Michigan. It was a decent livelihood that earned him his first car, a Buick, a very good car for the Buy American era when your friends would shame you if they caught you driving a foreign-branded vehicle. But unfortunately, the bottling industry, like auto manufacturing, was slipping into a steep decline. Salenza writes, quote, 
Glass bottles were already being replaced by plastic bottles, considered lightweight, safer, and cheaper. This plant is closing down. I can feel it, he affirmed. And it did. Manufacturing jobs in Flint were becoming harder to find, as nearby GM facilities were also closing, a move to cut costs and regain a competitive edge against domestic and foreign competitors who were building new plants in the United States, unquote. With other industrial jobs drying up in Flint, the family moved to Ohio, chasing new opportunities while they slowly evaporated across the Rust Belt. They settled into a new house with a pool, and for a while it seemed like the suburban promised land had been reached. But the good life started pulling away from them before long amid an expanding wave of deindustrialization. Shifting from job to job while also trying to go to school to become a teacher, her father slips away too, becoming a kind of ghost in their household, working odd hours while Salenza grows up in his absence. Quote, Days, weeks, sometimes months went by before I saw Dad again. He was like Bigfoot, leaving traces throughout the house, but never found in plain sight. I saw him in the jacket he draped over at the dining room chair, reserving his place at the table. I saw him in the potato chip crumbs that he left at the kitchen counter after scarfing down a meal before driving 95 miles between the factory and the university. I saw him in the pencil markings he drew on my algebra homework that he left outside my bedroom door. Although I couldn't see him, I could feel his longing for home." Unquote. The one other liquid that appears throughout the piece, besides the ocean, is the, quote, sugar water that her dad bottled. While her father's economic prospects dim, the brand name of that sugar water becomes increasingly ubiquitous, flowing freely throughout their community and popular culture while her father's ambitions curdle into jaded resignation. That sugar water fuels them with a high that blunts the dull pain of chronic economic insecurity. He teaches his daughters, quote, in this world, people want everything in excess, built on status. They believe greed is good, unquote. Salenza concludes with advice her father gave her on that road trip. He said, quote, get an education and find a career that won't consume you. Never lose sight of a world beyond your own. And no matter what, help others to never lose sight of this too, unquote. And Salenza did follow her dad's advice. She went on to work for, as a designer for Google. She also helped to organize the union at Google's parent company, Alphabet. In the end, though, both father and daughter built their work lives in a somewhat similar way, employed by ubiquitous brands that helped define their respective generations. And they both ended up working jobs that threatened to consume workers with exhaustion and alienation. It's just that her dad was at a factory and she was at a tech giant. Fundamentally, the story of Salenza's father's struggle in the Rust Belt is also the story of Google's rise in Silicon Valley. It really is, just as her dad said, all about money and power making the world go round. Regular listeners to the show might be aware that I wrote a book that came out a little over a year ago. And while it focused in closely on 10 different types of work, I definitely had others I wanted to write about. One of those never written chapters for Work Won't Love You Back was on musicians. Pre-COVID, I had vague ideas of going on tour with a band to be able to describe in detail the struggles of mid-level artists to make ends meet through constant touring. That chapter didn't make it into the book, and I never managed to write it as an article. So I literally went arg out loud when I saw this piece at Stereo Gum titled, Why Are Musicians Expected to Be Miserable on Tour Just to Break Even? by Zach Schoenfeld. The piece responds to a viral Twitter thread from the band Wednesday, which tabulated the costs of going on tour. Wednesday, Schoenfeld notes, are a relatively successful indie band, yet playing at South by Southwest actually cost them money. 
A South by Southwest representative told him, quote, all official showcase artists are offered a registration package which gives them access to the conference, showcases, and artist-only areas. Domestic artists are given the option to receive a cash payment in lieu of the registration package. The cash payment for a solo act is $100 and $250 for bands. Most artists take the registration package. End quote. How insulting. $250 for a full band to play a show? Registration for the event as payment? But, Schoenfeld notes, it seemed that a lot of fans just expected the band to be miserable and broke as the cost of, well, being a musician. The thread, he writes, quote, provoked lots of dismaying responses from people essentially blaming the band for not sacrificing all worldly comforts or pulling themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever. Sleep in the van was a common refrain. Other disheartening replies included shower at trucker stops and being in a band is supposed to be a slog. Others chastised the band for spending money on an Airbnb. End quote. Fans aside, though, other musicians told Schoenfeld they related and shared some of their own experiences. Musician Ella Williams, who performs as Squirrel Flower, told Schoenfeld, quote, Lately, she's been reflecting on the tension between thinking about music as an art form that brings her joy and thinking of it as a job. I think this whole conversation ties into that, Williams notes, because it's hard to have to look at it as a job. But at the same time, you need other people to look at it that way to respect you, end quote. This is the challenge of creative work. People expect you to do it out of love, and most musicians do love it. And yet the realities of touring are anything but fun and far from a vacation. Williams continued, quote, It comes down to looking at artists as products and not people making art to share, and also not looking at artists as workers. And it comes down to people in bands that do it completely differently, who don't really understand the vibe of long-haul touring. It's not a sprint. It's not a two-week-long party to get drunk every night and crash on people's floors. You're on the road for several months, and it's important to conserve any energy that you can. End quote. Zachary Cole Smith of the band Div, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, apologies if I am not, also responded to the tweets. Quote, it really did disturb me, he said to Schoenfeld. It's a long, long tradition of people wanting musicians to suffer. There is this expectation that musicians transcend the capitalist framework. You sell out when you act in the interest of making money. It plays into the idea that musicians are seen as just commodities and not as people. End quote. Smith, Schoenfeld writes, is involved with the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, or UMAW, and has been working to improve music industry conditions. Lately, part of that battle is with streaming services. Schoenfeld writes, quote, By most estimates, Spotify's payout rate comes down to less than half a cent per stream. The UMAW has petitioned Spotify to improve their streaming rates, pointing out that the company has tripled in value since the pandemic began, but CEO Daniel Eck has brushed aside these protests and essentially told musicians to just work harder. If most musicians can't possibly expect to make a living wage from people streaming their records, the expectation is that touring will provide the income, end quote. But Smith also pointed out that the expectations that musicians can just sleep in the van or crash on a couch while touring don't take into account the different experiences different artists can have trying to do just that. Quote, women or queer artists or trans artists or artists of color, he noted, won't be able to safely sleep in a parking lot the same way a group of white men might. Quote, if that's the barrier to making music, who is going to be making music? Who will have access to touring? End quote. And of course, COVID has only increased the cost of touring, from staying in hotels because it's not safe to stay with strangers, to buying masks and rapid tests, and as another recent article noted, begging fans to wear masks to shows to help keep the artists from getting sick and having to cancel their tour entirely. 
Schoenfeld writes, quote, For indie artists without trust funds or celebrity parents, there is little hope that the accepted signifiers of success will bring substantial change to material conditions on tour. End quote. Instead, some suggested that the artists pick up Instacart or DoorDash shifts on tour, another frustrating sign of the times. But Smith's reaction, which closes the article, pretty much says it all. Quote, it's like, man, would you say that to anybody else working in any field? Like, damn, you didn't make money at your job. Get another job. If somebody in your same field is calling for better living conditions, they're not doing it for themselves. They're doing it also for you. The industry pits us against each other, but we're all in the same effing crab pot or whatever. We can lift each other. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on Amazon workers, museum workers, seafarers, musicians, and the supply chain. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis, and now to Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, to you, of course, for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. We especially appreciate it at our ninth anniversary. If you could rate us on whatever app you use to get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts or whatever, it really does help us find new listeners. And special thanks once again to those of you who have supported the show financially over the past nine years over at the Descent website or now at Patreon, patreon.com slash belabored. We really appreciate your help making it sustainable for us to do labor journalism. If you want to share your story of working or organizing, you can, as always, email us at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org. If you're an education worker or a postal worker, a workaholic or unemployed, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>